Uh, well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Solar for Day Day. <laughs> when we talk about um, solar for day, we mean faith alone, and when we say that, we usually mean justification by faith alone. The article by which the church stands or falls is what the reformers said. Uh, but it's a controversial doctrine and it has always been so. It's been controversial a bit for me too since, you know, as a New Testament dabbler, um, I've tried to say a few things about it, you know, sensible and theological and not everyone's been terribly impressed. Um, in, in fact, I can think of two particular occasions where I've had some rather acidic um, interactions on this uh, topic. Once I had a job interview for an institution, wasn't this one thankfully, uh, where it went from being an interview to more like an inquisition. And it, I mean, you know how no one expects the Spanish inquisition, this really was the Spanish inquisition. Uh, and I was being pushed on this sort of strange idea that, but you say justification is related to union with Christ. And I said, yeah, I know, just like Paul and Calvin. Um, <laughs> I didn't think that was terribly controversial, but uh, apparently uh, it was. Uh, on another time, a academic dean at an American institution recommended I be dismissed from a current institution I was at because uh, he think I, 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 didn't, I didn't accept that imputation. The imputation was strictly what the Bible said. I said it's more of a theological implicate or a corollary, which is exactly what Leon Morris said. Leon Morris said imputation is a corollary of the, of the identification of the believer with Christ. So if it's good enough for St. Leon of Morris, surely it's good enough for me as well. Um, uh, so it has been because some pe people get very, very edgy if you're tinkering with this, this profound doctrine, but it's always been controversial with this thing called the New Perspective on Paul. Who's heard of that? The New Perspective on Paul? Well, guess what? It's now pretty much old, so we can call it the formerly New Perspective on Paul. Uh, there's a thing in America called the Federal Vision. I'm not too sure what that, what that is, something to do with a bunch of theonomists. There was dialogues between the Lutheran and Catholic Church trying to come up with a joint statement. Uh, even amongst the English Puritans, there was the marrow of divinity controversy, uh, if you want some bedtime reading. And then obviously there's the, the Reformation itself, which was all about are we justified by faith or based on the righteousness of Christ or is righteousness infused to us by participating in the sacraments of the church. And then we could go back to the Pelagian controversy and also to Paul. In my study, in my research, I have, I have defined justification fairly holistically. I think justification is the act whereby God creates a new people with a new status in a new covenant as a foretaste of the new age. And generally speaking, I would say justification has two main axes. First of all, and primarily, it's vertical. We have a right relationship with God because he reckons us to be righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ. In Christ's cross, God's verdict against our sin, our wickedness, and our rebellion is enacted. We see God's verdict against us on the cross of Jesus. But in the resurrection, God transforms that verdict of condemnation into acquittal, vindication, and justification. Now that means on the cross and the resurrection, Jesus is condemned in our place and also justified for us. And that is why Paul can say that Christ was handed over for our sins and raised 
for our justification. And when we believe in him, we have union with him in the spirit and we are incorporated into his righteousness. We are justified in Christ. So what is true of Christ, he is the justified risen Messiah, is reckoned to be true of us. That is the horal, sorry, the vertical dimension. We have a right relationship with God. But the primary way that Paul employs this is to emphasize the horizontal dimension. That anyone who believes, irrespective of race, gender, ethnicity, age or class, is justified. Uh, it's not like, well, this little clique or this little group is justified and if you want to be justified, you have to join them. There is no segregation, there is no second-class citizenship, no caste system, no hierarchy of privilege. No one can say I'm a little bit closer to the throne of God because of my tribe or my uh, ethnic credentials. Uh, to put that in another way, I would say this. Paul's teaching on justification by faith gives us the theological vision of Martin Luther and the social vision of Martin Luther King. God does not justify the just. He justifies the sinners, the ungodly. He declares them to be something other than what they are. They are declared to be righteous, not because they are righteous of themselves, but because they are united to the Messiah. They are righteous in Christ. And this is by grace, not by works. But at the same time, those who are justified by faith are united in one body, in one church, with one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one life they all share at communion. And they are justified, irrespective of whether they were bisexual, idolatrous, polytheistic Greeks of the ancient world, or even if they are rugby-worshipping, lamb-loving New Zealanders of the modern world. They are all one in Christ Jesus because they are all justified by faith. This is what Galatians 2 is about, how this horizontal... This vertical says, well, I was never an architect. <laughs> Dude, building stuff in the wrong direction. We see in Galatians 2, Paul wants to say it's, it's out of that vertical justification we all have that we see the basis for the unity of the church made up of Jew and Gentile together. So let me set a little background for you on this. Uh, we'll back up a little in Galatians chapter 2, looking at... In verses 1 to 10, you've got the church in Antioch. That's all going fairly swimmingly. You've got Paul and Barnabas doing a new church plan, breaking new ground, having a church of Jews and Gentiles together who believe in Christ, eat together, pray together, worship together. This is why a lot of multicultural churches like to call themselves you know, Antioch International Church. I've seen a few Antioch churches around Australia. It's good because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a multicultural church that they have going. And, and it seems to be going pretty well. But then some what Paul calls false believers creep in. And they don't like this one iota. And they're a little bit, a little bit miffed that you've got Jewish Christians fraternizing with these Gentiles. Because the Gentiles are not being treated like God-fearers, as if they're mere guests or visitors. The, the, the Christian Gentiles are being treated as equals, as if they are covenantally faithful Jews. And this leads to a bit of a discussion, and until finally say, look, we've got to sort this out. 
So Paul, Barnabas, and one of their Gentile converts, their trophy convert, Titus, they take him down to Jerusalem to go hang out with the big kahunas, Peter, James, and John. And they want to make sure we're off singing off the same shitty music because these guys reckon, these you know, intruders into Antioch reckon that what we're doing is not kosher. And so they have a meeting in, in Jerusalem, and we see that in, the, in, the, in verses 1 to 10. And it's, it's a good outcome. They extend, the Antioch and Jerusalem churches extend fellowship to each other. They recognize the grace in each other's work. They say there's one gospel with two mission streams, Paul to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. Nobody compelled Titus to get circumcised. And they said, oh, just remember the poor. Paul says, no worries, the very thing I was eager to do. So, crisis averted. We have a multicultural church in Antioch. Gentiles don't have to be proselytes or converts to Judaism. Everything going swimmingly for a couple of months. If you look at verses 11 to 14, uh, something changes. Peter, here called um, uh, Cephas, he comes to Antioch. And while he's there, he shares in this mixed fellowship. And so he's there fraternizing, intermingling, eating with Christian Gentiles. But then certain men from James rock up. And Peter then separates from mixed fellowship choosing now only to hang out with the Jewish Christian quarter of the group. Now, what we have to remember, this is a time in the late 40s where anti-Roman zeal is really reaching a burning point. And where it's just anti-Roman and anti-Gentile. If you read Josephus, you can see what's going on. There's a number of incompetent governors that are antagonizing the situation. So Judea is becoming anti-Roman, anti-Gentile. And yet you've got this church now up in Antioch who seems to be fraternizing very closely with, with the Gentiles. And this is probably creating problems for the Jerusalem church. They're probably being persecuted based on the reputation of the Antioch church. So it seems most likely that James has sent like a, an embassy to Peter saying, Peter, you're meant to be the apostle to the Jews. But word on the street is you're having pork sandwiches with filthy Gentiles. <laughs> it's pretty hard for me to evangelize the Jews when you've got a reputation of doing that kind of stuff. So look, just until the heat dies down, do you mind just playing it a little bit more kosher? Go for a little bit of, add a little bit of Pharisaic halakha. You know, go, that type of a thing. You know, just, 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 you know, not permanently, but just withdraw. Just keep it cool, you know. Make it look kosher. And so that's what Peter does. He thinks, you know, he thinks he's trying to help the Jerusalem church out because they're being persecuted over this. When Paul hears about this, he is livid. Because basically the policy has become this that they will not fellowship with Gentiles unless the Gentiles are circumcised. So we're not forcing Gentiles to be circumcised, so we'll have two churches, one for Jewish Christians, one for Gentile Christians. Okay? And, but if the Gentiles want to join us, that's fine. They just have to go through the normal route of proselytism, which has you know, been fairly standard. When Paul hears about this, he is livid. He's really upset. He's like... Didn't we just have a meeting about this? We just had a couple of weeks ago, a few months ago. We, we just sorted this out. Peter, you coward, you're trying to save your own skin by forcing Gentiles to part with a small piece of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> but 
basically, you, you are choosing Jewish purity over Christ's unity. And that is that will not do. And even, even Barnabas was suckered into this. So th- this, is, this, is, this is a debate between you might call the pragmatics of Judean politics versus theological principles. And that's when Paul begins to wax very eloquently in verses 15 to 21. Now, it's a little bit hard to see. Is, is this Paul continuing his response to Peter? This is either what Paul said to Peter or maybe it's like what Paul wishes he said to Peter. You know when you have an argument with someone and you think of all the good stuff afterwards? You ever have that? I have that discussion with my wife all the time, all the stuff I wish I'd said um, that might have won the argument for me. Um, now, P- Peter starts, sorry, Paul starts off with a bit of a recap in verses 15 to 16. He says, look, we who are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is justified by works of the law, not by works of the law, but by the faith of Christ. And we have, we have believed ourselves in Christ Jesus, so we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, Paul is recapping what Jewish, Christian, Jewish Christians like Peter knew, and that goes to show... Paul did not invent justification by faith. This is not something he invented. It's not, it's not his own little creation. Okay? This is something he says he and Peter and the Jerusalem church already knew about. You know, we Jews know a person is justified by faith, not by works of the law. And the works of the law basically means the Jewish way of life codified in the Torah. Okay? That's what it means. And Paul knows that that the Torah, the law, and the works of the law were never intended as the means to save and define God's people. Now, we know that. So why are you doing that? And then Paul notes the potential response in verse 17. But if we ourselves are found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? To which Paul says, absolutely not. Paul anticipates the objection that believing that God accepts everyone on the basis of faith will force Jews to fraternize with Gentiles, but that, that will then kind of compromise their, their cultic purity, some of, some of the laws that they've uh, traditionally obeyed. So if you follow this thing of gospel, you know, salvation by faith alone, that means you're going to end up becoming contaminated or having the kind of impurity that comes from associating with Gentiles. It means you'll end up becoming a sinner like Gentiles. If you hang around with Gentile sinners, you, uh, you attract the impurity, the contamination, with what, which, which comes from being around them. And Paul responds to that in verses 18 to 19. He says, If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Uh, look, if I, if I rebuild... Paul says, the dictates and distinctions of the law after it's been dismantled uh, by Christ, yet then I would be a law breaker. But then he adds, through the law, I have died to the law so I can live to God. Now that phrase, through the law, I died to the law, I I find that a very hard phrase to to, to figure out what what he's getting at. But what I think Paul is saying is the law points ahead to a time when Paul himself would be separated from it and bound to Christ. So the 
Paul, the law looks ahead to a time when it would no longer be the instrument that defines and negotiates God's relationship, uh, sorry, of the people's relationship with each other. Because, as Paul will say, dying, to the, dying with Christ means I die to the law. And that's a good thing, because under the law, Paul was dead. He was dead in his sin, but without it, he is alive to God. And that's when Paul brings in his gospel realization in verses 19 and 21. Now, I don't know whether you know this, but um, in the late 19th century, one of the most, I think the most frequent verse for preaching in Protestant churches was Galatians 2, 19 to 20. Um, a British historian, um, oh, you know him, Reese. Um, David Bevington did a study and he went through like funeral sermons and all sorts of things. The most common text for preaching was Galatians 2, 19b to 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how Paul explains his praxis and what he does. It all comes down to the fact that he has been crucified with Christ. He no longer lives that old life under the law. He only lives to God in Christ. And that means it is the Son of God, not the law, that saves, defines, and delivers the people. It means we live by faith, not by works. If I died to them in the Messiah, I died to the law, so I live to God by faith. And furthermore, if righteousness could come through the law, it means that the Messiah's death was for nothing. If there is any other way to attaining a right standing with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. That's basically the sum of Paul's argument. If you want to reduce it even further, what Paul is saying is you don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. You don't have to follow the Jewish way of life. You don't have to follow the laws or any laws for that matter in order to be right with, right with God. It all sells well and good. Now, has anyone come to your church recently arguing that all the males need to be circumcised if they're allowed to have the Lord's Supper? Or that we all need to wear yarmulkes or we need to get some menorahs? Uh, no, one's, no one's been forcing you to Judaize lately? Not really? Probably not? Well, no. So, so what's the application for this? I mean, we're obviously not going to be like in first century Antioch. We don't have that same tension of, of Jews trying to maintain their purity over against Gentiles. You know, we, we, you know, we don't have someone being persecuted up in Sydney and telling us to kind of tone things down. So what does it mean for us? Well, for a start, it rules out any type of legalism. If we are justified by faith, then it is by nothing else, neither effort nor ethnicity, or no combination of them. It's not justified by good works, not by ministry, not by theological study, not by having a quiet time, not by having charitable giving. Good works are good, but they are never the grounds of justification. We are justified because we entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because we can say, I have been crucified with Christ and I live by faith in him. 
that becomes the foundation on which our salvation, our identity, and our security within God's people rests. But the other thing it rules out, and this is what I think Paul emphasizes particularly here in Galatians 2, is it rules out any sort of ethnocentrism or any sort of caste system. You know, it means uh, no, nobody can, be, can say that their race, tribe, ethnicity, or class makes them a little bit closer to the throne of God. And it also means God does, sorry, Paul does not see the churches as being isolated homogenous groups where you have one group for um, young urban professionals, one, one church for the elderly, one for this ethnic group, one for this racial group. Paul, his vision of the church is for the churches Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, worshipping together. No privileges, no tribalism, no hierarchy, no caste system. Anything that promotes that, Paul would say, is not walking towards the truth of the gospel. So how does that element play out? Well, let me finish with this illustration. I knew of a, a really good Baptist church in Brisbane. Yes, good churches and Baptists in Brisbane do exist. Okay, there's some great churches in Brisbane. And this was, it. This was in an area called Sunnybank. Now, Sunnybank was kind of like the Brisbane equivalent of Box Hill. So it was an area that was becoming, you know, very, very, uh, in its demographics, very Asian. So one of the churches there decided they would plant a Chinese congregation. And so they, they went out and they got someone to run a, a Chinese service that would meet in two in the afternoon. And it went great. It went really great. Super great. In fact, the Chinese congregation was twice the size of the English-speaking congregation. And then they had an annual general meeting. And then they decided that they were going to swap service times, that the Chinese church, who was now two-thirds of the church, would meet at the morning session, and all the token white people would now be permitted to meet at two o'clock in the afternoon. This led to some tensions in the church because the uh, white, white Anglo-Saxons, who up until then were the majority, were a bit like, hang on, this is our church. We invited you people in as guests, as a token gesture towards you and your community. But now you're acting as if you are the main thing. That is not right. We are the main thing. You guys are the exception to the rule. How can you go around bossing us about? Now, th th this is a true pastoral situation, and maybe you've had similar, similar events happen uh, in, in other churches. And this is somewhat analogous to what was happening. in Ed How do you have these two groups relating to each other? The doctrine of justification by faith as Paul sees it lived out in Antioch, uh, entails that these groups belong together in Christ. They have the same Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what they have to negotiate within the precincts of their own conscience is how they do that together. Uh, it, it's not just going to be a matter of, well, we need to force all the Chinese people to learn English like that. Uh, or, or what, what do you do? And, and they did that. They negotiated a way for the church to move together. I can't remember what they exactly did, but that they found a way forward. 
And, and that is what justification by faith looks like at ground level. It means sinners who have been justified by the grace of God coming together despite all the diversity, despite all the things that historically, culturally and tradition have separated them, putting them aside and coming together in Christ. In other words, justification by faith creates a very, dare I say, complicated, crazy, but unbelievable ecclesiology that is possible in no other place other than in the body of Christ. Even, even atheists have to look at the church, like Alain du Botton, look at the church and say, we do what few other organizations can do. We do multicultural community better than others. We have a theological DNA that can bring us together in a way that other organizations and groups and movements simply can't do. That's what justification by faith means at ground level. Worshipping Christ in our differences together. And on that note, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we are justified by faith and nothing else. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made us one in your Son and by the Spirit. And we, and we pray, Lord, that we would live out that justification by faith means fellowship by that same faith. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we have died and risen for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you.